0: this is Tony and this is what do we miss the podcast where we explore our pop culture blind spots one episode at a time this is the uh, greatest distance I've ever had to travel to record an episode of the show is
1: it really Matt
0: no actually do you want to fill in our listeners
1: uh, sure so we had to at the last minute do a remote recording um, Matt's wife has had a bad flu the last couple of days and mm-hmm Matt's feeling all right, but not wanting to bring that into the the studio where we normally record and get our cooties all over microphones that are used by however many other people and not to mention passing it on to me. So, you know, I appreciate the willingness to be like, hey, I'm not going to expose you to whatever I might be having, even though I'm impervious to it, apparently. But, you know, (laughs) there's nothing there's really nothing worse than someone who. You know, is on day three of a really gnarly cold at work, and they're just slobbering all over themselves and coughing. It's just
0: you know, stay home. I don't know if we've mentioned it on the show. I think we have, but Meg has her own dance school. Um, it's an Irish step dance dance school, so she's always exposed to lots of kids. And I guess you know they've already isolated the co- the kid that was. Um, responsible for spreading the virus this time and the entire class except for i think like one or two kids they all got super super sick including meg's sister who's also a teacher at the school so it just went through the whole entire school and um i avoided it because uh i'm the best
1: (laughs) i'm glad they were able to identify patient zero speaking of i saw that in likely as a result of the sort of uh, coronavirus Outbreak that's happening uh, The Soderbergh movie Contagion Has spiked On iTunes <laughs> that, I remember Yeah it made my skin crawl I, I had never been so aware Of how sticky the floors were At a movie theater or how Gross and how much germs Were all over the seats I was in I felt very like It made me a germaphobe for a night
0: <laughs> Yeah it's a It's a pretty gross movie. I think a lot of people like it because you can watch Gwyneth Paltrow die violently. (laughs) Sorry, was that a step too far? (laughs) Who knows? Yeah, but she's like, there's that scene where like she's deathly ill and she's like, you know, it's gross and then she dies and it's like intense and a lot of people like, Mm -hmm. Gwyneth Paltrow, take that goop. Yeah, your goop won't save you now. Evidently, yeah. Anyway, Um, but in a few days, uh, as of the release of this episode, um, the Oscars are going to be on TV. So I was curious, like, what's your history with Oscars? Were you like one of those kids that was like, I got to watch the Oscars? Were you one of those people that at one point in time was like trying to watch as much of the Oscar nominated movies as possible?
1: Yeah, I definitely had a phase when I was uh, late in high school and through college where I would make a bit of an effort to to see as many of the nominees as I could, Um, but the Oscars were always something I watched regardless. Uh, My mom always liked award shows, so we would, um, the Oscars were the big one that we enjoyed the most. Kind of looking at some of the the nominees through the years, to the best of my memory, I think 96 is when I started. I think the 1996 Oscars are when I was aware of kind of tuning in every year. So I would have been 11.
0: Yeah, it's pretty much the same for me. I don't remember... I don't think my family was interested in it necessarily, but I don't know. I always watched it. I don't remember like the first ones. I just always have a memory of watching the Oscars. And There's probably like a period of time, maybe in my mid-20s where I, I, I missed a bunch of them. And then I kind of got back into it when I started watching a lot of movies again. And the past few years in particular... I've kind of gone out of my way to see as much of the nominated movies as I possibly can. But I noticed because, you know, as we've talked about in the past that we both log the movies that we watched um, using Letterboxd. And (laughs) I noticed that when I'm watching a lot of Oscar nominated movies, my rankings, uh, the overall average starts dipping down uh, because I'm watching a lot of movies that aren't always that good. Uh, so uh, last year and this year, I've kind of cut back a bit on making sure that I've see- gone out of my way to see every, uh, especially the best picture nominations, especially now that there's what there's, there's 10 nominations. I mean, last year was good because like, you know, I avoided green book until well after the fact and I'm glad I did cause it's awful. Um, and and in the past, there's like there's always one or two movies that were just really bad that were nominated for best picture, and there are this year as well. Um, so, ha- have you seen a lot of the the movies from this year? You're gonna have to remind me what they are because the last couple of years I've really sort of checked out, sure, and not paid as much attention to it. Yeah, this year is uh, Ford versus Ferrari, The Irishman, see it. Jojo Rabbit, Joker, Little Women, Marriage Story. 1917, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Parasite. Yeah, I've seen three of those. Yeah. I've seen all but two. I didn't haven't seen Ford versus Ferrari yet, and I haven't seen 1917. I'm going to try and see 1917 um, before um, uh, the Oscars. Uh, I've got like about a week as of this recording. Um, mostly because I think a lot of people are saying it's the front runner um, because it's been winning a lot of other awards especially like the DGA, uh, Sam Mendes, who's the director got one, um, for best direction. Um, I'll probably wait for Ford versus Ferrari. Uh, I hear it's okay. Um, but I, out of all of them, I mean, it's, it's a good batch for the most part. Um, Parasite, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Irishman, Little Women, Marriage Story. I mean, if that was just the best pictures, I mean, that would be better than most years. I think that's, I think this whole year has been a really terrific year for movies in general. It's a bit of a bummer that Joker and Jojo Rabbit are in there because they're, they're not very good. Um, but we're not going to get too into detail about that because that's not what this episode is about. Um, but yeah, I mean, that happens every year. There's always like a, a mix of stuff that, Hey, that's really, really cool. And like, you know, boneheaded kind of things that pop up like last year with Green Book winning best picture and, um, a lot of people kind of scratch their heads at that.
1: Yeah, I think, I think I've think i seen more. I think generally speaking, I've seen more of the nominees since they opened it up to 10 total. Um, and I think the one year I saw almost everything, 2010 was a very strange year, I think. And there was only, I saw all but one of them, which is, for me, unusual. What was 2010? But it was... Uh, 2010 was The King's Speech, 127 Hours, Black Swan, The Fighter, Inception, Social Network, The Kids Are All Right, Toy Story 3, True Grit, and Winter's Bone. Huh.
0: there's a lot of good stuff in there. And and I think the worst one is The Winner, right? Yeah. Was that King's Speech? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I th- the only one I haven't seen is The Kids Are All Right. But um, like Black Swan is, from the last uh, 10 years or so, a f- particular favorite. Yeah. That um, Social Network, I always too. get ex- I need to see the social network again. I always get excited when I see the fighter pop up. And then I remember that, oh, no, you, you're thinking of the wrestler. <laughs> <laughs> the fighter is not the one you're as excited about.
0: <laughs> yeah, the fighter wasn't
1: so great. It was fine. A kid I used to work with at McDonald's in high school was in it. Oh, that's interesting.
0: And Conan O'Brien's yeah. sister's in it, too. That's true. Um, I think what happens often is that, uh, especially now that there's 10 nominees, um, you know, a movie will go and get in there and and it's okay. It's not a bad movie by any means, but because it becomes like, you know, the front runner or it starts winning a lot of things, then people start to get really, really angry about it. So it becomes like, that movie's fine to like, fuck that movie. I hate that movie. That's the worst movie ever. Um, I saw that a lot with, with Shape of Water where people were like, yeah, it's Guillermo del Toro. It's pretty good. And then once it became the front runner, people were just like, no, this is this movie's garbage. And it was really strange how it just made that jump after a while. And I could also just be the, you know, the critics and, and that I follow um, on social media. Um, but you see that happen a lot each year. Yeah,
1: that hype is only always going to end up being a little self defeating. Um, you know, looking at 2010, I remember um, when Inception came out. And you know, I really liked it as far as a A blockbuster goes it's certainly better than a lot and this woman I work with was like oh I finally saw Inception I don't think it was the greatest movie ever made and I was like well why why would you approach anything expecting it to be the greatest example of that thing so when you get into award season two um, yeah that uh, that sort of uh, inflation that comes with a movie's reputation especially around any type of awards it might be up for, uh, certainly tend to get in the way of m- maybe people seeing it uh, as clearly as if it didn't have all that hype around it. I certainly know that I'm guilty of letting something stupid like a certain number of uh, award statues convince me it should be better than it might be.
0: Sure. It's like watching like a sports event at that point because I think you know, I'll even have those moments and... Uh, Meg will talk about this all the time. She's like, you get so angry. It's just like, well, you know, because in this moment, it's just you know you're rooting for something, um, and you know sometimes you see choices made or that that are are befuddling or or, or don't jive with with my tastes, uh, and then it's fun in the moment to just be like, how dare you! Um, but then a- after it's done, I don't you know I'm like, okay, that's fine because there are a lot of movies that I love that aren't nominated. There are plenty of directors throughout history that have never won or been nominated for anything. Um, so it's really ultimately not that big of a deal, but when you're in it, it's fun to sort of get invested in it. I guess I don't know.
1: Yeah. It's like throwing your hat behind a certain baseball team. Like you said, it totally becomes a sporting event.
0: Yeah. I mean this year it's really exciting that parasite is in the conversation at all. And for best picture, cause it's a foreign film and that rarely, rarely ever happens. Um, And there's a lot of talk that, you know, it it could win some stuff, um, which is cool for a movie that has been really successful, um, and it seems that American audiences have really taken to it. But it's still, you know, it's still not making the same kind of money as, as like, I don't know, 1917 or even Ford versus Ferrari, you know? So the reason we're doing so
1: much talking about the Oscars right now isn't just because uh, they're going to be a few days after this episode comes out, but we decided to see if there was a year... Just a random year where maybe we haven't seen most or all of the Best Picture nominations. So we picked a random number between um, 0 and 100. Yep, we asked Siri. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. We asked Siri to give us a random number.
0: Well, we actually did it from um, 29 to 99 because the first Oscars was uh, 1929 and... And we didn't want to do anything, we we, we kind of want to keep the 2000s out of there because it felt, at least to us, kind of current, even though 2000 is now 20 years ago. Um, but that, that uh, left it open to, you know, explore a lot of other things, and hopefully movies that neither of us had seen. So the number Siri gave us was 73, and, you know, we did a check, and the first movie, the winner of... The best picture that year was The Godfather, <laughs> which obviously is a movie that's been talked about a ton. Yes, and
1: something that you and I have both seen multiple times and, and could not even, uh, by any stretch, try to pass off as a blind spot. And we were ready to ask for a new number pretty much off the bat, but we, we decided to look at the other nominees, the other four movies that were up for best picture, and it turns out we hadn't seen any of them.
0: Yeah, which is pretty crazy. Um, this was a year when they only had five nominees. so But the other four, um, two of which are pretty uh, pretty big movies, um, neither of us had seen. Uh, so that was kind of exciting for us, so we decided to stick with it. But because of that, we're also really not going to talk about The Godfather.
1: Right. Yeah, the, there's nothing we're bringing to the table here.
0: The other nominees for 1973 are... Um, Cabaret, The Emigrants, Deliverance, and a movie called Sounder, which I had never even heard of. You? Uh, no, I had not heard of Sounder
1: or The Emigrants, for that matter.
0: I think the only reason I know or I've heard about The Emigrants is because Criterion recently released it. Um, they put out like a set um, which includes The Emigrants and its follow-up, which is called The New Land, um, and they included them together. So, uh, but that's the that's the only thing I had known about it. Uh, prior to, to watching it for this episode. And uh,
1: excellent segue from a point you were making earlier about Parasite. The Emigrants is a, a Swedish film. So, you know, one of those uh, sort of rare instances of a foreign picture being up for best picture of the year.
0: Yeah. What's, what was really interesting to me is looking at the nominees for 73 and the follow-up, The New Land was actually nominated for best foreign film. So I'm not really sure what happened there. And and The Immigrants actually came out in 71 and The New Land came out in 72. So, so for a movie to be nominated uh, for the 73 Oscars, it had to have come out in 72. So I'm wondering if because it's a foreign film and because it's connected to The New Land that they allowed some kind of... They had some leniency there or something because it was obviously nominated for Best Picture in 73.
1: Yeah, I tried to make heads or tails of how that worked and and couldn't figure it out myself, so...
0: Yeah. So, anyway, so we're, we're going to kind of go movie by movie here um, and, uh, you know, just talk about um, our experience with it and, and whether or not we think it should have been nominated for an Oscar uh, and talk about maybe some overlap between the movies uh, and also maybe bring it into that conversation of, you know, there are stereotypes behind the Oscars. You always kind of see certain overlapping qualities in the movies that are nominated. Uh, There are always outliers, uh, but there are always movies like that you can see that are like, yeah, that's a movie that would have been nominated. Why wasn't this nominated instead? Etc, etc, etc. Okay, so we decided in order to kind of put an order to how we'll be talking about these movies, you know, we looked at how many Oscar nominations each movie got and we're going to work in reverse order, you know, so the least amount of Oscar nominations to the most amount of Oscar nominations. Starting us off at three Oscar nominations is Deliverance. These are the men. Nothing very unusual about them. Suburban guys like you or your neighbor. Nothing very unusual about them until they decided to spend one weekend canoeing down the Kahulawasee River. Edge Entry. He runs an art service. Wife Martha has a boy, Dean. Lewis Medlock has real estate interests. Talks about resettling in New Zealand or Uruguay. Drew Ballinger, he's sales supervisor for a soft drink company. Bobby Tripp, bachelor, insurance and mutual funds.
1: Where you going? All right, I'm looking.
0: These are the man who decided not to play golf that weekend. Instead, they sought the river. Directed by John Borman, starring John Voight, Burt Reynolds, and Ned Beatty. So Deliverance has like, you know, has become like this cultural sort of meme in some ways because there are certain key f- things from the movie that have taken on a life of their own. I guess, or at least things that I've been aware w- aware of for a long, long time. They've been parodied from in The Simpsons. Um, so it's interesting to see that. Um, it- see the context for those things.
1: Yeah, the the dueling banjos, the squeal like a pig. And the context of either of those references is pretty harrowing. And, you know, it's become such a sort of piece of cultural shorthand that it shows up in some places where you would really least expect it. I feel like certainly dueling banjos shows up in like children's cartoons and... Just because it 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 sort of becomes like this signifier for you know that type of like yokel character, but <laughs> the implication
0: is always like oh no, what's SpongeBob getting himself into? <laughs> yeah, I mean it has it it has a playful quality to it. Um, I'm sure most people who are listening to this have heard dueling banjos. Uh, it's that that kind of melody is really famous. The da 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 da. And the back and forth between that and uh, and and an acoustic guitar, um, but in the context, it's it's almost building tension. There is a certain playfulness to it in that
1: moment, but you know certainly uh, that playfulness does not sustain itself for very long.
0: Let's talk about a bit before we get into it. Like briefly, what this movie's about. It's about four friends um, that are probably, I would say, you know, they're businessmen essentially. Uh, for lack of a better term, and um, they're heading out to the, so they're heading out to the Kaliwasi River um, to, um, you know, take some canoes down the lake, camp out and uh, and and basically, do the kind of rough rapid kind of river ride.
1: Um, yeah, weekend warriors. Yeah,
0: exactly. Um, and then uh,
1: shit takes a turn and gets pretty fucking dark. Right. Well, the reason they're doing it in this particular spot is that. It is the the area is going to be drowned out to make a lake for a dam, so you know there people are being displaced from their homes. Uh, the beginning, you know, has these these wide landscape shots, and you hear Burt Reynolds' character talking about the um, uh, the rape of the natural land that's about to happen to this place. They're going to ruin this perfect piece of nature to to make a dam. So it's sort of like their their last trip down this river. And and what, what comes with that is that they are going to be put in close proximity with uh, hillbillies, basically, you know, people who are living off the grid, who are out of step with the, you know, then contemporary society of the early 1970s. Um, you know, really, aside from, you know, the fact that these people run a gas station and have trucks, uh, they're not too far removed from uh, the South as it was probably, you know, four or five decades earlier than when we're seeing it.
0: Before I had, I had kind of watched this, you prepped me that you weren't that into it. I, I don't want to say it kind of colored my perception of it, but you know, I went in with an open mind thinking that I was going to dislike this maybe. Because usually, we, you know, we're on the same page pretty often. Um, so I, I went in being like, oh, I don't. maybe I won't like this. Uh, but I thought it was pretty good. Um, I don't... I'm going to say right now, I don't think this deserves to be nominated for Best Picture of 1973. Um, but I think for what it is, I think it does a lot of interesting things. I don't know if it has a ton to say. Um, but I don't know if that matters. Because I do think it almost plays like an exploitation movie. And I think maybe... My one issue with it is that it's sort of an expectation i mean it's sort of a exploitation movie you know made up to look like a prestige movie uh and I wish maybe it'd come down one way or the other uh on either side
1: sure i I can see that and I don't disagree with those things and and this i guess is the uh the downside to maybe voicing an opinion prior to us sitting down to talk about it for recording, which we typically don't do. Um, but yeah, I really didn't like this. So, you know, these guys go out on the river trip and they meet these hillbillies um, and they're varying degrees of, um, you know, uh, you know, looking their nose down at them to just being outright shitty. Uh, and then, so if doing banjos is one thing people know, the other thing is that eventually two of them, get separated from the other two and are sort of cornered by, uh, two of these hillbillies, um, who then, uh, you know, bound them and, and, uh, rape Ned Beatty's character, uh, while John Voight's character watches. Uh, and, and that's the other big thing. That's the thing Deliverance sort of has this reputation and notoriety for. And as far as I'm concerned, um, you know, I, I think you're dead on in saying it. You know, doesn't really firmly pick a side whether it wants to be a procedure or an exploitation movie. Because I think up until that, um, you know, that that encounter that results in the rape and then the immediate aftermath of that, it really leans more into being an exploitation movie. And then I think after that, there's still 40 minutes to go, and then it just like there's no energy and it's dull and all that exploitation sort of sensibility seems to vanish for the most part. For me, for me, it just kind of became this really dull man versus nature movie and didn't really have anything to say about what that means.
0: See, so for me, I think a lot of what he's doing formally is kind of shooting through things and kind of, I, I think he really likes to revel in this idea that there are these are four actors that you know that are literally riding down the river in a canoe. And I think it kind of it wants to show you because that's not even something we see a lot now. people putting them into a position like this or, or sh- showing them actually doing the thing because movies prior to this would probably be mostly set um, shot on a sound stage. And even now, stuff like this might be considered a little too dangerous to put actors into that situation. So I think the movie revels in that, and I think it likes to kind of uh, show you the process. So it really shows them traveling down the river quite a bit. And I think after um, the rape scene, which I do think is is pretty effective, especially because it doesn't use any music at that point. And the whole movie uses music kind of sparingly. Um, so to me, a lot of it is kind of sparse and haunting, And immediately following the rape, um, Burt Reynolds' character shows up and he puts an arrow through one of the guys. And the other guy escapes. So then the aftermath is them trying to escape, but then the other hillbilly is essentially trying to hunt them down. So he's shooting at them from afar. Um, And I thought that scene was pretty well executed. And the scene where um, John Voight kind of takes out the other hillbilly is so dreamlike in its quality and so purposeful and how it how it shows it because it doesn't really it almost plays like a a fever dream because in that moment he's sort of delirious and it almost seems like the arrow's coming from somewhere else um and i thought all that stuff was really interesting for something that is you know usually pretty cut and dry for a man versus nature thing and then it's about them living with these repercussions because the movie starts off and it shows burt reynolds basically being this guy who's like the confident one, but as soon as, uh, you know, shit goes south, he's the one that's like, we need to bail. We need to get out of here. Uh, he he kind of turns code on them in a sense. Like, he loses that confidence.
1: Yeah, and then he then he gets hurt, and then he's at the mercy of of being cared for by John Voigt and Ned Beatty, who were the two who allowed themselves, not allowed themselves, but, you know, were sort of looked down upon by Burt Reynolds as being, you know, soft. Ned Beatty's... Uh, A friend of John Voight's so he doesn't even know the other two and and it's sort of you know he's even an outsider within the group and you know Burt Reynolds has like this I don't know weird like leather vest it's you know very like uh tough guy macho affectation and
0: before you go any further I'm gonna say something pretty pretty controversial right now I think Burt Reynolds is pretty unattractive like, he was considered, like, a sex symbol in the 70s. And I just... There's something about him that... Like, you look at previous sex symbols before him. You look at sex symbols now. I just... I don't know how he fits in there. Like, what happened to people in the 70s where they thought that that guy was really attractive? I don't know. Maybe the mustache does a lot of work. Maybe. Because, he like, have his in hair in this, this is really weird. He has weird bangs.
1: I, I mean, the 70s certainly had a look. <laughs> sure. You know? Yeah. But, yeah. I, I mean, he makes... He makes it known that John Voight and Ned Beatty are the soft ones. And, you know, so so that is part of it. You know, he, like you said, he gets ankled pretty quick and is out of commission. And it's those, those two are left to save the day, more or less. I think, I do think you're right. I think the, um, the assault is, is very affecting. I, I think even the immediate aftermath with, with Burt Reynolds shooting out the, the arrow and the, you know. You know what do we do and him like real in that moment taking control and then you know Ned Beatty is just in the background just you know dead-eyed and not able to really articulate anything he's just sort of shuffling around letting the others kind of direct him into where they're going and they they ultimately they bury the body knowing that the 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 river is going to be dammed up and it's going to be flooded no one's ever going to find it um you know, if they did that and then, you know, cut to them <laughs> loading their canoes back in their trucks and riding off into the sunset and like, Oh, that would have been a, I I would have liked that short, but yeah, I don't know. I just, it just didn't, didn't really do it for me, which again, you know, we go in with uh, a couple of things here. There's the obvious, the notori- notoriety of the movie that's carried it through the decades as this, uh, pop culture thing everybody knows even if they don't know where they know that thing from um to it being nominated for an oscar and you know again i guess maybe maybe i allowed myself to think too highly of it before i even saw it in the first place
0: yeah i so i think maybe the thing for me too is that i had the opposite reaction going into it was that oh this is probably just some ridiculous um you know these super macho guys kind of in a weekend surviving the wilderness kind of thing. And so that was probably my expectations going in. And and that was clearly wrong because I think the four guys are, are, you know, they're not painted in the best light. And even the one that they say is the best of them, which is, we haven't mentioned is played by Ronnie Cox. Who's the bad guy from RoboCop and total recall. Um, He, he, he dies and he's the one that they said was the best of them. They're always like, "Oh, he was the best of us and he's the one that dies." I think the movie is really and they say it at one point um when they're talking about the river that you think you can control it, but you can't. And I think that's what this movie is. At the end, John Voight is worried that Ned Beatty's going to kind of rat on them and let them know that they had they killed these guys. And and you're not entirely sure you know, what that outcome is going to be. And at the end, it's it seems clear that the police know what happened, but they're just not going to do anything about it. So it's like this things that are out of their control, like this weird sense of just like, as much as you think you know what you're doing, or you know who you are, or as confident as you are, shit's still going to get out of hand. And I, I thought that was interesting. That's not the movie I thought this was going to be. And, and I thought what was really fascinating is like, there's this weird attention to detail, like, when John Voigt kills the guy, he goes up to him and he removes his fake teeth. And I was just like, you you never see something like that. You know? He he does it to check in a weird way. And it just felt so yeah, personal. He, it was interesting.
1: Yeah, because he, he, he notices that the guy he's killed has a full set of teeth. And they clearly let you know during the rape that one of them was missing most of his top teeth. So, yeah, I mean, that was an affecting moment. I think... And I'm not making this comparison as a person who particularly likes the movie I'm comparing it to, but I think I was expecting sort of um you know, maybe the the heightened stakes and, and melodrama of something like a deer hunter here. Uh I, I kinda yeah, I I kind of maybe expected this to be more of like deer hunter southern gothic kind of thing.
0: Yeah, I was really surprised by how understated it was. Uh and I kinda like that quality to it. Um, because I don't uh, getting back to the Oscars. uh, They don't typically nominate stuff like this, I think. And I'm not really sure what existed that was quite like this before deliverance. I'm sure there's some outliers here and there, but it feels kind of like, you know, I don't know. I felt like it kind of set up a lot of things for the seventies in some ways. Again, like I don't, I didn't love it. I wasn't like, Oh yeah, this is, this should have beat the Godfather. Um, But I thought it was a pretty interesting movie. Yeah,
1: I think, you know, and in terms of comparing it to the other nominees, um, I mean, The Godfather comes to mind. That is absolutely a a sort of, um, you know, prestige movie dressed up as uh, pulp or, you know, the other way around, if you want to say pulp dressed up as a prestige movie. And I I, I just, you know, I don't think Deliverance does it nearly as well.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's probably fair. Uh, and, and before we move on to like, this movie is also filmed by one of the greatest, uh, cinematographers, um, ever, and that's Vilmos Zygmunt. Um, he also did, um, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Uh, and this movie looks pretty terrific. Although I think the version I watched, I don't know how you watched it, but it it didn't seem like a restored version. So there were some moments that felt, um, there, there were some scenes with John Voight at night that looked uh, I don't know. It looked strange to me, and I I, I couldn't tell why. It had that weird sort of like like when he was climbing the the rocks to yeah. get to the top to kill the guy.
1: Yeah, I couldn't tell if that was supposed to
0: be some sort of
1: you know like fever dream effect or if yeah. it was just a, a bad example of day for night shooting.
0: Yeah, I'm not I'm not entirely sure because the rest of the movie looks so great, um, that it makes and and Vilmos is so. He's one of the best so it almost makes me think that it was purposeful like it was an early kind of uh, In-camera effect that they did to make it feel dreamlike because that sequence is is pretty dreamlike in its approach.
1: Yeah, but it stood out to me as well, and I came down more on the side of thinking like maybe it was stuck with a uh, You know a a bad technical solution to a problem they couldn't solve otherwise or something. Yeah,
0: maybe so, moving on, our next movie with four Oscar nominations is a movie called Sounder. During the Great Depression, a man is unjustly sent to prison. My deputies mean we gotta take you down to the county house. Now, his family must struggle. Working in the sun, out here all week. Again to overcome here. adversity Charlie, just because a man and his family
1: are covered
0: Look, I don't make the rules in order to survive The boy is hungry, Rebecca
1: Experience the groundbreaking movie
0: And what do we make it to, Rebecca? Another season share sharecropping for old man Perkins Working ourselves a death so if he can get richer and we can't even eat when cropping time is done This is directed by Martin Ritt. Um, ha- have you ever heard of Martin Ritt? Uh, have you ever seen any of his movies? Most famously probably... No. His most famous movie is probably Hud with Paul Newman. It's pretty Okay, I know the name. Yeah, that's a pretty good movie. Um, I had never heard of this movie before, and it doesn't seem like a movie that a lot of people talk about. Uh, it's starring the great uh, Paul Winfield, who's he's one of those guys that pops up in so much stuff, so it's kind of great to see him in a sort of, I, I guess it would be like a lead role.
1: Yeah. And, and certainly, um, I think it's the youngest. I recognize him being in something. Um, it, it took me a while to, to figure it out, but all I needed to do was give him gray hair and, and put on a few pounds. And I recognize him from star Trek was, um, what I remember seeing him. Oh, he's uh, he in the wrath of Khan And, um, I, yeah, and, uh, and but certainly I remember him popping up in things from that era. So I remember, I have a, a memory of, of an older version of, of his performances. This is
0: about a family of uh, black sharecroppers. It's sort of like a coming-of-age story in a way. Um, and so basically Sounder refers to the family uh, dog. And the movie starts off with them uh, hunting uh, raccoons and squirrels. And so, um, the father played by Paul Winfield, uh, steals, I believe it was, a. he steals some, some meat from a, a smokehouse nearby. He steals some food and, um, he kind of gets taken away to be part of, it's kind of like a chain gang kind of thing, I guess. It's a really simple story about like his son coming to, to, he goes to look for him because they're not really sure where he is. Uh, after he's been taken away. And there's that hole missing in the family, essentially. Um, and I thought it was interesting in how simple it was. So a little disclaimer, though, the version that I watched was, um, I rented it online and it was cropped. It wasn't the proper aspect ratio. It was a bit of a bummer. Did you watch it on DVD?
1: Yeah, and it was a full, uh, a full frame yeah version of it. I
0: don't know if like a proper restored version on the prospect, Proper aspect ratio exists. I couldn't find one, uh, which is a bummer because I watched some trailers and it looked it looked really nice. Um, it's like the super wide frame, the 2.35. Um, that's as pretty much as wide as it gets. And so we, we lost a lot of the image, um, unfortunately.
1: That makes me sad to hear because I suspected um, and I, I definitely felt like I was missing something by not having that that bigger immersive picture of, you know, what, you know, I mean, uh, Louisiana in the thirties. So there's a lot of texture and environment there to take in. And, uh, yeah, definitely missing from the versions of it. We saw, I was also surprised by how simple it was, you know, it it felt like it was uh, missing a lot of things that I would have expected from a movie about race from this point in time. Um, And and like in a good way, I mean, it felt very modern in the fact that there were really no like white savior characters and there were no real, um, you know, there were no like big monologue or speech moments. Um, You know, those moments of revelation or of um, mutual understanding, you know, the the type of things that show up in these types of movies that very often are Oscar pictures were very understated, um, which was refreshing for sure.
0: Yeah, it's really just you know, showing this family and and their perspective at this particular point in time, you know, the hardships that they faced without really making it a big messagey picture. And I think that was pretty refreshing, uh, but startling for a movie from 1972. Roger Ebert really liked this movie. Uh, and, and in his review, he talked about how he had never really seen a black family like this um, in film before. Nor had he seen a relationship uh, like a father son relationship or the, the relationship relationship between the father and his the wife, um, played by um, Cicely Tyson, and, and and yeah it's it's a it's a strange movie it's it's really really simple
1: yeah and um, you know from what I was able to read about it it seems like a lot of the intention behind it was to sort of position it as sort of an answer to what was becoming predominantly like the black exploitation genre. You know, looking to um show African Americans on film uh in ways that weren't over sexualized or hyperviolent or that kind of thing. So, you know, I I think that um you know, to the to Ebert's point about not having seen this before, I, you know, I, this is an example of coming to it so much later and isolated from the circumstances around it. Um, maybe dulls a little bit of the impact. I mean, you and I are both seem like we're surprised by the same things in the movie, but Mm -hmm. I I have to imagine it was, you know, speaking to those points, it it was a, probably a bit of a a revelation given the way representation on film had been going to that point.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. Um, just like deliverance, I, you know, I was just, I wasn't sure what to expect about this, especially considering that not a lot of people talk about it. Um, so watching it, I was pleasantly surprised because typically when an, a movie is nominated now and it feature, features a mostly black cast, um, there's it's mostly about slavery in general. And there is, like as you said, the white savior kind of character. Um, obviously, Black Panther was nominated last year, so that kind of breaks that norm too, but that's an entirely different type of movie. Um, But it's rare to see something like this that's so understated. Like it shows like um, the son kind of uh, going to school and what that was like for him. And it depicts it, it, there's no villains. There's no, you know, there's no real, there is conflict because obviously they're a poor family and the father gets taken away. Um, But beyond that, there was no one that, um, there's no one that you're you're kind of rooting against like I guess I don't know it's strange yeah I think the closest thing to a villain is
1: the the sheriff who you know is and this is not to excuse him putting um, the dad in jail but like that's really the extent of his villainy he's like well he broke the law and like he's he's not he's certainly not sympathetic to their cause because it's the South and the thirties. Um, but he's not really an important character. I mean, his big scene comes from, there's a, a woman who, um, who, who pays the family to, to do her laundry, a white woman. And, um, what's, I'm drawing a blank on all the characters names. What's the son's name? David. So, um, so David asks this woman to help him find out where his dad is being kept because the, the sheriff's not telling his mother. Um, And she does she kind of sticks her neck out and tries and then the sheriff catches her and you know gives her a grilling and then that's really the end of those characters and there's no again there's no big speech he's not a a mustache twirling villain um it's just that's 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 it that's the world that they live in um most people most white people are not there to help them a few of them are somewhat sympathetic but have their limits to how far that sympathy will take them um uh, but but otherwise it, it's it's David doing what he can to you know keep his family together and, and find his dad. Um, the closest thing to messages, you know, like big capital M message movie kind of moments, or again, like you see him in school with white children and he's you know clearly being ostracized, and then he happens upon a a, a black school while he's looking for his dad. And he has this great little moment where the the teacher asks, don't you have school where you're from? And he says, no, not like this. And like, that's it. That's the message. Like, even he has not seen a room full of black children before learning. Um, And just that, that brief, simple acknowledgement is, you know, more powerful than a kind of overwrought monologue, you know?
0: Yeah, and then when his dad comes home at the end, it it isn't sort of this big triumphant moment. It's kind of played naturally, and the father's just, you know, yep, we just got to keep moving forward and and doing the best we can because this is the world we live in, and unfortunately there are biases against us, um, and we do what we can.
1: Yeah, unlike something like a a green book, which, you know, made... The, the 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 black musician presumably at the center of its story a, a side character in his own biopic um, you know something like that it, it seems more designed to you know maybe pat white people in the back uh, maybe make them feel good for the fact that they're not <laughs> uh, outwardly terrible to people who are different from them uh, this does sounder doesn't have any of that this seems, uh, you know, it it really does not, yeah, it was not, not made to sort of, um, yeah, to, to help, uh, white people sleep
0: easier at night. Sure. It's, it's most, the most forward thinking thing about it is that it is just a representation of a family and, and this family life. And it's not really making any grand statements beyond that, but it's mere fact of existing is its statement I guess because things like that at that time and even right now don't really exist um that much mm-hmm. did you
1: did you like it yeah I did um I I do think seeing it sort of cut up the way we discussed lessened the impact of it a bit because I, I did feel like I was um I was seeing something incomplete you know the stories or the performances are there but um yeah, you know, that, that you know, that thing that makes a movie a movie was um was not as, as represented not authentically represented as it would have been if you saw it, you know, forty years ago. Yeah, I mean I, I think it w you know, I think at the end of the day it was it was fairly light. Um it was not um it was not my least favorite of these movies. Um but this I think this one and um deliverance struck me uh, as maybe the two outliers, and I think that's reflected in the number of awards they're both up for. I certainly would toss Deliverance off the list first if if asked. Uh, but what about you? What how, how did you how did you feel about? I this think one?
0: that's pretty much the same. Um, you know, looking at the list in general, I thought out of these movies, I, I would keep it on there uh, mostly because, again, I think it's it feels pretty unique. Uh, and it's strange to have a movie age that well, I think. I do wish I could have seen it the way it was meant to be seen, so uh, I don't know why people don't talk about this movie. Uh, it, that surprises me just a bit. Um, it doesn't seem to pop up in like you know conversation with uh, a lot of cinephiles, and I know Martin Ritt is, is a pretty successful director, and HUD is a pretty big movie, so I'm surprised that this one really doesn't get talked about as much as it does. Well,
1: I mean, maybe that's maybe that's a symptom of the kind of stuff we talked about. This was not necessarily made for white audiences. Sure, um, and it's so understated you know, that it
0: could be easy to dismiss it. You know, like oh, that's just this simple little family story. That you know, you think of The Godfather, and it's just this heightened, you know, family drama. And you think of Deliverance, and it's just you know these people. <clears throat> that are you know again man versus nature is a pretty big uh genre uh, and it's something that's usually pretty heightened and even something like the immigrants um which is a sprawling epic um yeah those are things that you can instinctively that have a hook and that's they're easier to talk about maybe um and so this one just by nature of being so understated maybe uh can be taken for granted
1: yeah and i think i will say despite my sort of maybe wishy-washy um take on it um i, I do think this one this, i think this one is maybe kind of lingered in my mind the most um which i'm very surprised by because i think the other two are going to talk about i really instantly um found myself you know really enamored with um but at this point i'm maybe a week or so out of having watched sounder and um yeah i just you know, there's something about it that sticks with you and i think that um you know that simplicity maybe uh shouldn't be overlooked uh, and i think you're right and maybe it does get a, dismissed a bit as maybe too much of like a you know like a like a family movie and uh you know outside of you know weird like uh every day 15 years or so a disney movie getting nominated or something you know that doesn't really happen a a ton
0: all right well so speaking of the immigrants that is our next movie with five oscar nominations
1: there is no power but that of god the powers that be are ordained by god whosoever therefore resisteth these powers resisteth the ordinance of god and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee,
0: uh, and that is directed by Jan Tro- Troel. He's a Swedish director. This is a Swedish film, as you had mentioned up front. Uh, it's starring the great Max von Sydow and Liv Ullman. Um Yeah, and, and as it says in the title, this is a story about um, some immigrants from uh, Sweden, and, and they take off and they go to uh, America. It's uh, oddly, you know, it's easy to describe, it's pretty simple, but it is sprawling uh, in its scope and its detail. It's about, it's three hours long, um, and uh, uh, it really gets into the detail from why this family and their um, people from their community chose to emigrate, and um, the actual journey, of going from Sweden to America. And then once they're in America, their journey to where their new home will be.
1: Yeah. I think the, um, you know, the three categories of people who are emigrating from their home for a new life, you know, you can, you know, uh, Max von Sidow and his wife and their children are, are, sort of representative of, you know, people who have, um, run out of opportunity. Uh, in his case, he's a farmer. They've had one season too many of bad luck. Um, Fire. You know, the land is... Yeah, the land is dead. Ultimately, um, they finally get rain, and then lightning hits the barn and burns it down. Um, so he's he's got nothing left. They lose a child. Um, his brother is um, basically an indentured servant who is... Uh, sold into the employment of a, a farm nearby, um, you know, but he's, he's, he's educated, he can read, he's very curious and very smart and you see him early on and you, you kind of get the sense that maybe he's a little lackadaisical, but you know, I, I think what you end up learning is that he's, he's got drive and ambition beyond what, you know, his elders in the community, um, sort of have an understanding for there's nothing for him there. So whereas his brother is where his older brother is sort of run out of, um, land to live off of, uh, you know, for, for, for this younger character, the, the thing he's missing is, um, some sort of fulfillment beyond just doing the same thing. Our fathers and grandfathers have always done. And then the third group of characters are, uh, um, you know, looking for religious freedom. They are Christians, but they're not following the, the, the teachings and whatever denomination of Christianity, the, the community is and lives under. Um, you know, they are persecuted for, for practicing their faith differently. So collectively they all represent a lot of, you know, a lot of the, the sort of archetypes of these types of, um, coming-to-the-new-world
0: characters. From what I've read, um, the the follow-up, uh, which is a movie called The New Land, they were filmed, I guess, concurrently. And so it is one sprawling six-hour story. And the second one is about them kind of making America their home. And it starts literally where this one ends. Um, and f- from what I've read, uh, the complete picture is actually the six hours. So it is a bit of a bummer that... We only watched the three, um, <laughs> although it does feel kind of complete in its own way. Um, so for me, I think uh, like I admired this more than I actually liked it. I think because uh, I, I I like movies about process and 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 you know getting into the details of something specific. This is like about the actual experience, um, but I felt a lot of this kind of. I I felt the run running time uh, for a lot of it. And I thought the first half in particular before they get on the ship to go over to America, uh, is a little repetitive. And, um, I think there's only so much miserabilism I can take when, you know, it's well-meaning characters and you just suffer one indignity after the other for them. Uh, and I don't know if that always makes for a compelling narrative, even if, there's a, re- it's based in reality. Um, so I kind of struggled with this for a bit. Um, I do think again, in the pieces it's, it's really interesting and and I do think the performances are all are really good. Uh, I love uh, Max von Sydow and obviously Liv Allman and they're like stock players also for, um, Ingmar Bergman. Uh, and there's a lot of overlap for the type of stuff that Bergman does with Jen Trolet does. Um, except for I think sometimes his stuff is a little more sparse and a little more um a little weirder maybe this almost felt like a John Ford movie except for it was really sad
1: <laughs> yeah i i i didn't really feel the runtime with this i i um you know maybe there were a couple of patches that felt a little a little slow but i certainly didn't feel like i was um you know i wasn't sweating the 3 hours when I was in it,
0: I I don't and I don't want to say that you know, I don't think it was slow. I just felt that there is so much of with scene to scene. It it did go by pretty quickly. I just felt that when you're in it, there was it it almost felt to me like it could have, it could have shaved a good half hour off or forty minutes off of the the front end in particular. Sure,
1: yeah, I, I think. You know, and this is strictly a, a personal, not bias, but um, yeah, I, I had not long ago talked to my grandmother about her experience of uh, uh, emigrating to the States when she was younger. And so, I, I mean, that was, you know, closer to like 80 or so years after this movie takes place. But I think a lot of what she described felt very familiar to what I was seeing. Um, so it's it sort of, you know, for me personally, sort of rounded out some of these uh, concepts and ideas of what, you know, people in my family went through at one point. Um, and it became hard for me to sort of separate that. I found myself rooting for these people very quickly. Uh, especially the, the, the two weeks they're on the boat crossing the Atlantic was pretty, particularly upsetting and
0: I think that was the best part. Sure. Yeah, I would agree. Um, it really gets into that nitty gritty of what it was like to be in, in close quarters with each other. And, and, you know, there's so many people and and there's, uh, the difficult conditions and everyone's getting sick and they're blaming everyone for things that really are unnecessary or, or trivial. Um, you know, Liv Ullman's character is pregnant before they leave. So obviously she gets, you know, that's a very difficult journey for someone who's not pregnant. So um, it's way worse for her. Um, They're sort of pitted against each other in some instances. And this movie doesn't have a lot of levity uh, up until the very, very end where there's this ends on this sort of this beautiful moment of hope, I guess. Um, But a lot of it is kind of like, You know repeating this this sort of like you know the dire circumstances that these people are in all to try and make things better for themselves which you know again is like is is is, i'm sure as super close to reality as as possible um that doesn't always make it um an interesting watch for me
1: sure i i don't know that it's necessarily um i don't know how often i was entertained (laughs) um But I I was, yeah, I was enamored um, by a lot of it. Um, Yeah, I I mean, I don't know if this is necessarily, if this was, if the intention was for laughs, it certainly didn't come off that way. But um, Max's younger brother, you know, his sort of, his perception of what life would be like in the States. And And I think, you know, a lot of, poor people coming from different parts of the world sort of have this or maybe had at one point had this um inflated and and skewed idea of what the new world looked like um you know uh, that there was a uh, because they live in a very structured very old european kind of caste system um they don't have that and then or he's saying how in the states they don't have that, and then when they do get to America and they're on the riverboat and they see the rich people up top getting all the food, and you know one character's like, "I thought you said they didn't have this here," and he's like, "Oh well, you know I think you're just seeing people who have figured it out and got rich. You know, they they started like us. Probably not the case."
0: And he also kind of says that like, "Oh, he implies that they'll get there. That they will. You know, everyone in America has that opportunity." And, and, and now that we have that opportunity, we too will be rich. So I think that's part of it too, is like watching this and knowing that there was a follow up that kind of like continues this story and is equally as epic as this one made me feel like this was just a piece. And I kind of wanted to see the whole thing. Uh, You know, I I plan to hunt it down at some point. Uh, Hopefully it pops up on the criterion channel. Uh, I would like to see the restoration because I believe the version I watched I would have liked to have seen the, the criterion restoration of it. Cause again, the, the, the version available to rent online, um, maybe wasn't the best quality. Um, so, and it is a really nice looking movie. It has a lot of kind of, you know, golden hour kind of light coming through when it's not like, you know, dark dimly lit, uh, homes or ships and stuff like that. And, and those scenes always feel sort of claustrophobic. There's a lot of close-ups um uh, by design um so I, have you ever heard of Jan Troell um i know you haven't heard of this movie have you ever heard of the director before i have not no yeah I, I mean i only heard about him recently again when this was was announced by criterion um obviously bergman is like the big swedish director um so it was interesting to see his some of his stock people kind of stock players show up in in another swedish movie um so um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm not going to say I disliked it. I, I did like it. I just, I didn't, I don't know if I necessarily connected with it. So, the last movie for our 1973 Best Picture catch up is Cabaret. You're oh, God, how depressing. You make me think I'm an international woman
1: of mystery. Does my
0: body drive you wild. Now, tell me all about you. I want to hear everything. Everything? Absolutely everything. The last movie we're going to talk about is Cabaret, uh, and that was nominated, um, I don't know how many it was nominated for, but it won eight Oscars, which is more than The Godfather, which won three Oscars. Um, So that's, that's pretty crazy. Um, And this is a movie that I've been dying to watch for the longest time. Um, And for whatever reason, I just haven't. And um, I don't know why I don't have a very good reason for that. Maybe. um, Yeah, I don't have a very good reason. I like Bob Fosse. I love um, all that jazz. Uh, And I do like a lot of musicals. Um, So I was really excited for this out of the four movies. Um, When this list came up, I was like, oh, Finally, I'm going to cross cabaret off that list.
1: Yeah, I would agree that this is probably, actually, I think going into it, this and Deliverance, I was excited for both. Um, this one, I think, lived up to what I wanted it to be. Um, like you, this has been on my list for a while. Um, weirdly enough, I've seen two or three like community theater productions of cabaret. Um, so... Uh, It's certainly been a while, but I, I had, uh, you know, I certainly had some experience with, I don't know if source material is the right word because it seems like it was based on a couple of books and then they made a play and then they made a musical about the play, which incorporated some of the stuff from one of the books and it's, it's got a whole, and he adapted this too. He had stuff
0: specifically written for this one.
1: Yeah. Which is always, you know, something I've always, uh, liked knowing about um like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is a good example where Douglas Adams Douglas Adams did the radio show and the book came after and that was a little different and then the BBC show that he did is different from the book and they're it's all the same skeleton Mm -hmm. with different kind of elements hung up on it um but yeah this this was um this was great
0: yeah this is this is my favorite of the four easily end of discussion <laughs> the end <laughs> yeah. um life is a cabaret what can i say um yeah so this movie uh, stars liza minnelli uh and she's essentially kind of this is uh, 1930s um berlin and the rise of you know you know predates uh world war Two and, and and it's right in the the middle of the rise of the, the nazi party
1: yeah m- m- sort of uh Mounting fascism is really starting to take hold of the country, um, to the point where it's, you know, early on, there's a scene where somebody actually, you know, gets up out of his chair at the club and, you know, throws a Nazi out, um, sort of, that's where we start. And then by the end of the movie, um, no one's trying that anymore
0: yeah, Liza Minnelli plays this dancer, uh, in this club. And this is kind of like, um, you know, the turning point maybe when, um, I guess this is like the, the start of, this is like a, I guess like a girly club kind of thing. Um, there's cross dressers. Um, so it seems like something that, you know, it was maybe slightly underground at the time, you know, like this was something that was bubbling up under the surface. So I think the movie is what it's trying to say is like, while there was this rise of fascism, there's also this rise of this sort of desire for, um, something different, whether that be through entertainment, but also through sexuality, um, because there's a lot of different, um, people that express themselves in different ways in this movie. Uh, and even the narrator of all the musical performances played by Joel Gray, and he won an Oscar for a uh, supporting actor, um, he's cross dresses for a lot of the movie. Um, and then this kind of coincides with Liza Minnelli falling in love with this guy, uh, played by Michael York who comes to Germany to be a translator. Uh, and, uh, they kind of fall in love with each other, but in the process they meet up with this other guy. Uh, and then the three of them sort of have this little, um, tryst. Uh, and, and I was really surprised that, you know, this movie is so, uh, it's so frank in its in its discussion of sexuality because Michael York, you know, sleeps with um with the helmet uh, Graham character. Uh, he plays this character called Maximilian von Huhn, and so the three of them have this sort of, you know, love tryst, I guess. And it's always like this back and forth between the three of them.
1: Yeah, there's really no, um, you know, given the fact that this was made in or released in seventy two, I expected more of the, you know, sort of explicit conversations around bisexuality and homosexuality. Um, you know, knowing those are all part of it from seeing the various productions of this I've seen, I expected it to be kind of pushed back into subtext more than it was. It's, it's all pretty Frank. Um, you know, even earlier on before, um, uh, before they meet Max, um, you know, there's a point where where Eliza Minnelli comes on to Michael York um, and he's not into it. And then she gets offended and, and then she's like, oh, uh, you know, unless you like boys and that's fine. And he's like, no, I just, you know, I've just had bad experience with the women. And, and he tries to pass it off as uh, inexperience to, to mask what we learn is, is actually going on behind the scenes. But either way, like... Um, yeah, those conversations just right there and they're, they're having them and they're, they're not beating around the bush. They're, uh, they're very frank. And I, I was caught off guard by that.
0: Yeah, and it also doesn't make it like a big statement thing either. It's not like about like, you know, and I sleep with men. It's just like this is who these people are and these are the lives they lead and that's normal and natural, uh, which is a lot of movies that are nominated for Oscars that tend to deal with sexuality always have those moments to let again, like make the audience feel comfortable with it and, you know, shout things from the rooftop. And this is a lot more subtle. Um, that being said, I do think it's overall message, um, especially the ending is a little on the nose. I think what makes it work is probably um, in the direction. Uh, you know, the final shot essentially shows the club that Liza Minnelli has been performing in the whole time. And, um, the final shot is is like um, sort of the audience reflected in a nearby mirror, and it's kind of like you know fractal and kind of cut into pieces. But the audience is mostly replaced by Nazis. Um, so uh, it it's a, a beautiful image, and it says a lot. Um, again, a little on the nose, but I it kind of works for me anyway.
1: Yeah, and I, you know, I think in terms of the story it's telling about the the the, the rise of fascism and bigotry and, and hatred. I think it I think that last shot wouldn't have been so effective if we had these characters we've been living with for two hours who were already hiding from the world. Yeah you know, the a big thing is that it's not just Eliza who accepts Michael York's character for who he is. It, you know, it is everyone at this club, there is a sense that maybe, uh there is a place in Germany for pe- these people to be uh, living their or their true selves um, you know in a, in a more public way than they would have been able to. And I think so having that contrasted with what is actually happening politically and, and culturally, uh, yeah, to not be if you're not going to be as bold with both of those threads, um, you know the ultimate message is not going to be as effective. Um, now when I've seen productions of this and I get the sense that it, this has been the way they have done it for the, since the late nineties, since they did a revival of it is at the end when the MC character who here is played by Joel Gray, um, does his final song. He's, it's very like militaristic, um, and he's wearing, um, the, the striped, um, garments, Uh, the people in concentration camps are forced to wear. And then, um, you know, he's got like the, the, um, the pink triangle badge on his arm instead of the, the yellow star of David. Um, so yeah, you know, I don't think, um, no matter what, I mean, I think whatever version of this you're seeing that that message is really getting hammered home. Um, what's frightening (laughs) about things like this is when, um, that message proves to be, uh, you know, timeless in a way that is not like, oh, yeah, man, that was evil then. we got to make sure that doesn't happen again. Um, when it, uh, you know, w- when the relevance of it persists, it always makes something like this a little uh, harder to watch than if you can, you know, safely in isolation be like, well, at least, at least we're not worried about that anymore. This is a timely watch is what I'm trying to get at.
0: <laughs> yeah, it, it, I was really going into it. I, I, you know, I just knew it was a, a musical starring Liza Minnelli and I thought there was going to be a lot more, um, razzmatazz. <laughs> I thought it was going to be more like a, a throwback traditional musical, um, which I was still excited for. Cause I, I like Bob Fosse. I think he's a, a great choreographer and a, and a great director but that was kind of, kind of stupid of me because all that jazz is such a heavy, strange movie about him confronting his own ego, <laughs> and then dying. Uh, so I I probably should have expected more uh, going into this, but it, I really really enjoyed it. Uh, and we haven't really gotten into any of the musical sequences yet, but um, you know, they're all like. So beautifully shot. Uh, And and we've talked about musicals on the past in the show and how oftentimes, you know, modern musicals will kind of cut too rapidly. They're not showing you the dance so much. Um, And this, I think all the cuts are so purposeful. They're usually cut within moves or to point towards something or um, to cut, you know, it shows through things and all the, the dance sequences are sort of claustrophobic. It's always shooting through, either other dancers or through patrons in the club to give you this sense of like this tiny space and how alive it was um and i just the the cinematography for this movie is just extraordinary
1: yeah you know um you know unlike a uh you know a classic hollywood musical where you've got everybody in a wide shot you've got scenes where you know liza is um, in focus, but further back, and you've just got arms and legs of the chorus girls sort of framed around her in a way that you're still not missing anything because he's being thoughtful about showing the showing the the parts of the 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 chorus lines movements that matter in that moment and keeping the focus on the star. Uh, and yeah, I thought it was very. Um, I think all of the the musical sequences were really fabulous and a few years ago, I rewatched Chicago for the first time, uh, probably since that came out and couldn't help but think of it watching this and, uh, how underwhelmed I was revisiting Chicago. It just felt very flat and, and dull. And even the moments of high energy and, and spectacle in Chicago ring kind of hollow rewatching it. Um, but yeah, there's a, you know, there isn't a, authenticness and a, a sweatiness and a, a real sense of, uh, you know, there was a real sexiness to this um, that, that you know, felt very appropriate for, you know, a movie set primarily about people who who lived in this, you know, um, you know, seedy nightclub.
0: Yeah, we haven't talked about Liza Minnelli's performance yet either, and she's just astonishing. I, and, you know, I only really know her from kind of, being younger and seeing ads from her touring and doing performances. Uh, and then obviously from arrested development where she's terrific, but it's an entirely different thing. And to see her hair being so effervescent and just charming, uh, but also at the same time, this is someone that, that, that needs attention. She, she exudes this, this air of confidence, but at the same time, she's constantly doubting herself. Uh, and, and and needs acceptance from other people uh but that all comes f- through in the performance um i was i was really blown away by by it
1: uh yeah no I, I i agree um like you said outside of arrested development i really did not know what to expect from her and that's you know sort of um you know if not her doing a caricature it is sort of through this meta lens of how the, how the world perceives Liza Minnelli as a person. Um, and yeah, for the most part, I, I I loved her performance here. There were, there were moments where her, her voice and her delivery, uh, was so close to Judy Garland's that it, I did find myself sort of, uh, being distracted by it, but it it only happened a couple of times. There were certain words that, you know, sounded very wizard of Ozzy me, if that makes any sense.
0: Oh, oh, for sure. Um, there are moments. Meg and I are are massive Judy Garland fans, and um, a few years back, we went and we just watched every one of her movies, or at least all the ones we could get our hands on, all the way from the <clears throat> the movie she did with um, Andy Rooney, all the way up to her final movie, um, um, her final. <laughs> Uh, actual movie is A Star is Born, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. But uh, I was a st- I was startled to just see um, how, how similar they were and to hear that voice, you know?
1: You mentioned sort of expecting this to be a bit of a throwback. Um, did you ever see New York, New York? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I, I think that was sort of, you know, that was Scorsese deliberately trying to do one of these throwbacks to Golden Age Hollywood, musical-adjacent, you know, big production value and stuff like that. Liza is in it with De Niro and, you know, I don't, you know, I I think maybe, you know, Fosse's instinct was right here because the seventies and, and golden age of Hollywood were so opposite. New York, New York really shows that those two sensibilities clash more than they complement, Even if, uh, you've got the best of intentions going into it.
0: I like New York, New York. I think it's kind of underrated. I think maybe it's precisely for that reason that you just said. I think that's fascinating. That kind of dichotomy going up against each other. And I also think that Scorsese is just, you know, he, he does some interesting things um, with the filmmaking, maybe not a hundred percent successful.
1: Yeah. I, I don't disagree. I think it's a fascinating movie and probably better than the reputation it has oh, for sure deserves. But, um, you know, I, I don't know that all of it works, and I. but I think with Cabaret, sort of that decision to lean into, you know, whatever this new Hollywood is, um, and approach a musical like that um, was the right call, as opposed to, you know, who knows what would have happened if it were, a, you know, a, a West Side Story
0: version of Cabaret, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's startling, like, you know, this is the year that the Godfather won, and godfather is a movie that everyone just talks about repeatedly but this movie won you know liza won for best actress joel gray won for best supporting fossey won for director uh jeffrey unsworth won for cinematography you know they won for best art direction and set decoration best sound best film editing best music and a, a score and original score um the only thing it didn't win was writing screenplay um and best picture um which went to godfather so um that's i i didn't you know i wasn't aware of that going into that going into this but um yeah i i I really like this and i was excited to finally cross this off the list and and, and i think it'll be something that i'll definitely revisit out of these five and so we'll include the godfather in here just for shits and giggles how would you rank these
1: are ties allowed
0: (laughs) no (laughs) no okay um Sure, you can do whatever you want. I don't give a shit.
1: So I watched the four of these within a week mm-hmm. of each other, and I don't know that I've seen The Godfather in its entirety in over 10 years. Same for me. So I could, you know, my, my, my gut is to say um, Godfather, Cabaret, The Emigrants, Sounder, and Deliverance. Uh, but who knows? Um, I, I can't imagine Godfather slipping to third, I think it'd be a toss up between cabaret and Godfather mm-hmm. for one and two. But, you know, maybe I'll maybe I'll watch Godfather after we're done recording. <laughs> I'm not gonna do that.
0: <laughs> Same question. Okay. Fair enough. Uh yeah. I, I would need to rewatch The Godfather in order to feel really confident about it. Um but yeah, um Godfather, cabaret, um then probably uh Sounder, and then um, Deliverance, and then The Emigrants. Oh, okay. Do you think there's anything from 1972 that um, should have been nominated for Best Picture that's that's left off of this? You know, I looked even at what else came out. Not even necessarily Best Picture, but something that should have gotten some nominations, I guess. I, I
1: looked at what else came out that year, and I could not make an educated guess how to answer that
0: question. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> Um, so for me, my favorite movie from 1972 is The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, which is directed by um, uh, Louis Benuel. Uh And this was actually nominated for um, and, and won for, for uh, Best Foreign Film. Um, but I, I mean, if you're going to nominate another foreign film, like, you know, fuck it. This is a, better than all of these movies. Um, uh, Solaris is also uh, by uh, Andre Tarkovsky. Uh, Is just a beautiful, weird science fiction movie. Another foreign film that's from Russia. Uh, The Bitter Tears of Petra von Kent, which is a Rainer Werner Fassbender movie. Just terrific, Um, which wasn't nominated for anything. Um, What's Up Doc by Peter Bogdanovich, which is kind of this throwback to screwball comedy, and it made me um, understand what people see in um, Barbara Streisand. She's just so awesome in this movie. and It's really, really funny. It feels a lot like John Hawk's uh, screwball comedies from the 30s and 40s. Uh, Avanti, which is one of Billy Wilder's uh, final films, has a great um, uh, Jack Lemon performance uh, where he's going to basically has to pick up his, his father's dead body. Um, a Pretty underrated Billy Wilder movie, uh, in, in my opinion fat city by john houston which is also terrific i think that's enough for now <laughs> there's a, we get it there's lots of uh, a bunch of the lone wolf and cub movies came out this year and a lot of those are a lot of fun and then also um uh female scorpion um no female prisoner number seven scorpion i think that's a full title it's a terrific japanese um prison sort of women prison revenge movie which is highly influential to Tarantino um which is pretty terrific. Um yeah. So I mean next year also next year has the Long Goodbye and Badlands and The Exorcists and Paper Moon and Friends of Eddie Coyle so in Mean Street. So like the following year is pretty good. So lots of good stuff coming up. Seventies. Woo
1: yeah I um I definitely flagged a few years that um maybe not all Oscar, uh, maybe not all Best Picture nominations, but had uh, at least three that I was really uh, excited about. Um, First of all, and just, I noticed this while I was doing research, Dr. Doolittle was up for Best Picture in 67. (laughs) Isn't that like famously bad? Isn't the original Dr. Doolittle, like wasn't it a kind of a turd? I don't know. Or am I thinking of I don't know. Anyway, I was surprised to see that. I mean, why Um, Green Book won last year? Well, I guess. (laughs) But yeah, so the year before, um, 1971, had three three out of the five were uh, pretty interesting, um, especially to have them in the same category. You got The French Connection, Clockwork Orange, and The Last Picture Show. Um, 73 had American Graffiti, The Exorcist, and The Sting. Um, 74 had coppola up against himself with godfather 2 and the conversation which is fantastic
0: which one would you pick Ooh, i mean
1: uh, they're two very different movies you know i mean godfather 2's got the uh, multi-generational cross-cutting that's oscar bait man you,
0: you gotta pick one you gotta pick one uh
1: i think about the conversation more than i think about the Godfather. i agree II.
0: correct answer ding 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 conversation beats godfather 2 you heard it here first better movie Go ahead. Uh, <laughs>
1: that, year, that year also had Chinatown and Lenny, which uh, I didn't realize Bob Fosse yeah, directed that.
0: I'm pretty excited to... I, I really want to watch that now, now that I've seen a bunch of his stuff and I haven't seen Lenny, but I hear that's pretty good, so pretty excited to see that.
1: Jumping ahead to the 90s, um, I'm just pointing this one out. So 94, several of the pictures for. Movie of the year were Pulp Fiction, Shawshank Redemption, Forrest Gump. One, um, but Quiz Quiz Show was up there and nominated. Quiz Show is great.
0: You know, I don't think I've ever seen Quiz Show to be honest. I really like Quiz Show. Yeah, here it's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah so that's just a handful of years that uh, had some pretty interesting picks. Um, so
0: I'm gonna um, I'm gonna go back in time. We're gonna do 1939, which is a year that's talked about all the time, but. I mean, there's 10 nominees. I haven't seen all 10, but of the ones I've seen, um, Dark Victory, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Nanachka, Stagecoach, Wizard of Oz, and Gone with the Wind all in one year. I mean, that's that's pretty crazy. A lot of good stuff there. Uh, just a few years later with 1941, we have How Green Was My Valley, uh, The Little Foxes, The Maltese Falcon, Sergeant York, Suspicion. In a little movie called Citizen Kane. So Matt, why don't you tell us a bit about what we're doing next week? In two weeks, rather. Okay, so uh, our next episode, we are going to look back at the 2010s. And we've uh, looked at a bunch of different music websites. And we found their best of the decade music lists. And we kind of did a total, like, assigned everything some point values and. We came up with our own top five based off of that, and we're going to catch up on some of the best music from 2010 to 2019.
1: Uh, And when you say we are going to catch up, you mean you're going to hold my hand through it because I am uh, grossly misinformed about uh, contemporary music.
0: Sure, if that's how you want
1: to approach it. Um, That is how I want to approach it. I want to throw myself under the bus before anyone else can do it to me. (laughs) they're all for the most part artists who i'm mm-hmm. aware of um just by virtue of them being uh some of the uh largest voices in in music the last 10 15 years some longer um but uh yeah we'll we'll dig into why i uh have always sort of had i've never really had my fingers on the pulse when it came to music
0: and i have <laughs> <laughs> well yes. no i mean i think ultimately what we're really going to get into is how it's okay to not be caught up on things but it is that just means that you have new things to experience and things new things to look forward to um so i'm going to take your glass half full and i mean glass half empty and i'm going to make it half full how's that sound if you're pouring your half of a glass into my half of a glass. It's just no, regular full. No, I'm not full. pouring anything in. I'm saying like you're looking at the glass and you're like that fucking glass is half empty. And I'm going to look at it and say like not only is it half full, I'm going to add a little lemon there for you, a little lemon slice and put that in your 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 water. Is it water? or is- If you put a lemon slice in the glass after you put your half but, into my half, not, it's going to Again, I'm not spilling my over half into your half. We only have one glass in this this theoretical conversation. There's just one glass. I've I showed up and I'm not thirsty. I, I, you know, I'm I I drank before I came, but there's a glass. It's sitting there. It's your glass. You're thirsty and you're like this one glass right here is is half empty. And I'm like, "No, it's half full. I brought a lemon. I'm putting the lemon in the glass for you because you're going to enjoy that." And there's plenty there for you to get through this episode with just this half full glass of water.
1: Yeah, well, you know, if you got here on time, you would have seen that the glass was full in the first place. And then I got so bored that I drank half of it. So, I mean, I'm right in thinking it's half empty. I think this bit's gone on long enough.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right, we'll see you next time.
1: All right. Thank you for listening to What Did We Miss? If you want to catch up on previous episodes, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at What Did We Miss? And if you want to drop us a line, our email is WhatDidWeMissPod at gmail.com. And thanks as always to the What Cheer Writers Club in downtown Providence. For more information, you can go to their website at whatcheerclub.org or follow them on Twitter and Instagram at WhatCheerClub.